0: Good afternoon. Today on Living Writers, we have an episode from the archives, a special live event held at Literati Bookstore back in February of 2014. Then I spoke with Maria Cotera for the first Sweetland Center for Writing, Writer to Writer, Word Squared, in collaboration with Literati Bookstore and WCBN-FM. Yes, a live Living Writers You'll hear an audience and bookstore sounds. It seems like a time capsule of that late winter evening six years ago for us here now in early winter of 2020, a very different time. I hope you and those you love are healthy and warm. Thanks for tuning in today to join us for this conversation about writing, about strong women of color, about witnessing and recovery. You'll hear a lot of stories and ideas and a lot of laughter, too. So thanks for listening this afternoon. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. (laughs) Welcome to Sweetland Word Squared, Writer to Writer, a collaboration with Literati, WCBN's Living Writers, and Sweetland Center for Writing. Uh, Welcome to our guest, Maria Cotera, and welcome to all here at Literati, Um, and welcome to all listening, with luck, on WCBN's Airwaves and Streaming. My name is T. Hetzel, and I host Living Writers um, every Wednesday on WCBN, and I'm also on faculty at Sweetland Center for Writing. Before our conversation begins, I'd like to thank a few folks, Um, John, Hillary, and Mike of Literati, um, Sweetland Center for Writing, and Scott, Shelley, Ray, and Aaron, especially. Um, John at Rue's Roast. Rue's Roast has brought some coffee. If you've got some coffee in your hand, that's Rue's Roast. Um, Victoria Davis at University of Texas Press and WCBN FM, especially Carl Woo. And, and Don, who's back at the station running the board and who gave us an hour of his showtime so we could do the special edition of Living Writers for Word Squared. And also Alex, who's here making all the sound possible, up here working the magic. Um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Zainab Khalil, a former student of Maria Cotera's, uh, to introduce our Word Squared guest today. Zainab
1: Maria Cotera is an associate professor in the Department of Women's Studies and the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. She is a graduate of the Modern Thought and Literature program at Stanford University. As a master's student at the University of Texas, Professor Cotera worked with Dr. Jose Limon on a recovery project that uncovered a lost manuscript by Texas folklorist Jovita Gonzalez. Professor Cotera's book, Native Speakers, Ella Deloria, Zora Neale Hurston, Jovita Gonzalez, and the Poetics of Culture, received the Gloria Anzaladua book prize for 2009 from the National Women's Studies Association. Professor Cotera divides her time between teaching and public history. Her projects range from documenting the lives of women of color in the 20th century through scholarly work to developing new avenues for sharing the scholarship with the broader community. Her community-based projects include a museum of the Latina-Latino experience in southwest Detroit and an online archive of Chicana feminist activism in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, And I'll just say, I work at Sweetland, but I also um, nominated Professor Kotera for this um, event or this project because I took a class with her last year. Um, It was a basic class. It was just um, introduction to to women's studies. Um, And the class really changed my life, Uh, not because of, you know, just the the text or the curriculum, but because of the way Professor Cotera really um, encouraged us to engage with the texts in a way that went beyond the surface um, and really forced us to look closely and analyze what these um, women of color feminists, uh, that was the part that stuck out out to me the most, um, had to say. So I think I speak for a lot of people in the room, a lot of her students, and especially a lot of her women of color students when I say that she is an inspiring force on this campus um, and really has been a source of support for a lot of students on campus. So please join me in welcoming Professor Guterra.
0: Thank you, Zainab, thank you. And Maria, thanks for coming today. Thanks very much for being here. Um so let's talk about you as a writer, mm-hmm. Maria, a little mm-hmm. bit. When when did it when did it all begin for you? When you were you a little girl who was writing scribbling notes in a an in an old-fashioned
2: notebook or, or
0: or stories or what tell us a little bit about the, your writing beginnings.
2: Right. Well, you know when I was thinking about what I was going to say today, I, of course, I don't know what your I didn't know what your questions were going to be. But one of the things that kind of came to me was my first I'd like to say I'd like to talk about the first time I witnessed writing. OK, um, great. And that was uh, my mother, uh, who was a Chicana feminist. Um, she used to take my brother and I to McDonald's because the McDonald's had just built a playscape, which is a, an indoors playscape, which was a new thing at that time in Texas. And it was air conditioned. Air conditioning. And uh, she would take us there and like tell us to go to the playscape and play. And she would write out in longhand um, a book that she ended up um, self-publishing uh, called uh, The Chicana Feminist. And um, I, that was my first... And I remember because I had already been familiar with the phrase from Virginia Woolf um, that what a woman writer needs Mm -hmm. is a room of one's own. And I I remember thinking at the time, and I must have been around 11, you know, that it was an interesting juxtaposition that my mother's room of her own was in a McDonald's (laughs) landscape. (laughs) If only Virginia had known a room of one's own or a
0: McDonald's of one's own. Right.
2: And I I, I begin with that story because I think that um, for many women, and I would say, you know, for the women of color writers with whom I have been most engaged in my scholarship and my thinking, um, for many women, finding that room in the room metaphorically to write is really a challenge. And, um, and yet they find creative ways to fit it in and around the Mm -hmm. contours of of the expectations of their lives, and they do it. And my mother did it longhand, writing it out. She wrote two books, a book called Dios Hembra* in uh, 1976, and another one, which was a collection of essays and speeches that she had given while she was involved with the social movements that she was involved in, uh, called The Chicana Feminist. And so those were the... So I feel like it's kind of an amazing thing that my mother was a writer. Um, Given the circumstances of our family and of her life, which was really full of lots of different things. So you had
0: such an early model of what it is to to care enough about writing where you're Mm -hmm. you're fine. You're carving out the time or fitting it in, as you say, and whenever you can. Right. Uh, And I think it's no accident then that you also use the word witnessing. To Mm -hmm. start this, Maria, because Mm -hmm. so much of your Mm -hmm. current work now is working with oral histories Mm -hmm. and recovering, Mm -hmm. being a witness for (laughs) women of color writing.
2: Right, and that's. I think that that's really where it gets started. Because you know, the other thing is that my mother was. And sorry, I'm going to talk about my mother a lot. I'm thinking about her a lot lately, not a lot, not too much, um, <laughs> just to start crying. <laughs> um, but she, uh, you know, her life was really dedicated. And I think there was a, a period in the second wave—that's the second wave of the feminist movement—where women were not yet scholars. They were not recognized scholars. There were no women's studies departments, and at that mm-hmm. time, what women did. Was they kind of bootstrapped it, just like our DIY culture <laughs> right now, just like all our, you know, and I'd like to think about writing in a broader perspective, right? Just like right. all of the people who are blogging right now, they were producing knowledge um, in the margins, right, of their lives. And um, she, her book was basically um, a book about the development of Chicana feminism as a praxis over the last. Five hundred years. I mean, she began with the indigenous people of Mexico. So five hundred years. Yeah. So that recovery process, that interest in recovery, that interest in giving voice to occluded or erased histories, that um, was very early. It was a kind of a passion of hers. And I was like her intern for my whole life living at home. Like I, she had me doing research and, you know, so she really incorporated me into that process. And and mm-hmm. so I think, I mean, I actually think it's very unusual and I don't know, you know, maybe in the Q and A we can talk about this to have, you know, mothers who were so involved in producing knowledge, without any kind of remuneration or really any fame. She wasn't a scholar, she wasn't a professor, but so many women in the 1960s and 70s did it that way and self-published and did their own thing and produced knowledge at the margins of dominant knowledge. And so that's kind of my impulse as both a writer, how that, that shaped, you know, witnessing that work that was so, you know, someone who was so invested in doing work after hours, but also the way in which um, the process of recovering a hidden or lost history, a story that hadn't been told, voices that hadn't been featured, that that was the kind of generative thing for her. And then later when I, you know, started doing my own work. That became really important to me, and so from the very beginning, even though my work has really shifted um, during over the course of my career, the one thing that remains the same is giving voice um, mm-hmm. to, to voiceless subjects, particularly historical voiceless subjects. I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, ever presume to be able to give voice to the voiceless net who are living. I think they can voice their own yes. voice. <laughs> it's like, how many times <laughs> did I say voice? <laughs> you know. <laughs> So really, I mean, it's because the dead cannot speak, except through our acts of memorialization. Um, I I feel like that's that's really what I'm passionate about. And so it seems like then there
0: really was no... Moment when you were starting to work as a writer, it was sort of something that was just within you, and this this process and watching your mother and Mm -hmm. and because I was I was wondering if the working at the Chicana Research and Learning Center had been critical in your development as a writer. That was my mother's foundation. Oh, it
2: was (laughs) okay. Yeah, A little bit of nepotism there. Um, Right. So, you know, in the 70s, there was a lot of money available through WIA grants and things like that to create these kind of there were no again, let's remember, there were no women's studies departments. Right. Mm -hmm. Or very, very few. They were really early. And so a lot of women of color, especially that's the history I know, um, like my mother, um, got grants from the government to create these sort of clearinghouses for the production of knowledge on women of color, totally on the margins and totally on the outside of the academic mainstream. And so I did a lot of work there um, producing everything from resource books for like there was assertiveness, assertiveness training was really popular in feminist circles. In the '80s, my mother uh, wrote an assertiveness training manual for uh, Mexican American women called Dona Dorma No Está Aquí. Dona wow. Dorma, wow. not home. That is a great title. <laughs> I know oh, she's wow. awesome. And so I helped her produce that. And so I was really involved in a kind of um, bootstrap enterprise that was very f- not fly by night, but you know. Mm. Funded by disappearing grants constantly. And in, then in the backlash of the 80s and 90s, a lot of those grants went away and she had to get a real job. But, um, but you know, so I would say that one of the things that really when I was a master's student, um, as Zainab mentioned, I was involved in this research project in which um, I was really uh, you know, uh, privilege to um, do basically it was an archival research project and archives are essentially documents documenting people's lives. It could be anything from manuscripts to photographs, et cetera. And there was this one woman, this folklorist from the 30s who had been long dead, who who my mother had interviewed many years before. Um, mm. And we uh, were fortunate enough to discover this hidden manuscript, this lost manuscript oh, in her office. Did, in her. So where was this?
0: Because when you said discover this hidden manuscript, it sounds like there's a film here too, Maria. I know.
2: So. I'm the Chicana Raiders of the Lost Art. What's his name? Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. What's his name? Who's Indiana that? Jones, hey, thank right? You. <laughs> Mexicana Jones. Perfect. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, it seems so mysterious, too, like finding this and because you're recovering was. it, but just finding it. Yeah, so I mean, essentially the story is this woman was a relatively well-known folklorist in the 30s. She had been forgotten by time and just she had published a few things, but she was um, the student of a very famous Texas folklorist. And so we had their correspondence and we were interested in learning more about her. And we discovered in their correspondence that she had written a novel and she'd sent him like three chapters and I was like wouldn't it be cool if we could find this?" So we started tracking oh, it down and um her uh, she had no children, so and and she was survived by her housekeeper, so her housekeeper inherited the house and around that time, uh, some librarians were inquiring and they said she said, "Come look at the library, and in a box." sort of tucked away, hidden uh, with correspondence between her and a co-author who was an Anglo woman, actually, mm. interestingly, um, there was this manuscript that had been written in the 1930s and put away. And you were a grad student, Maria. I was a master's that, student. A master's so it's student. So kind of amazing. And so we got this thing. Uh, it was like on um, half of it was on, uh, what's that reverse transfer? Uh, Oh God! Oh, uh, like the blue copy. Yeah,
0: the, <laughs> we don't know what this is anymore. It's but too old technology. There was a
2: time when people when they wanted to make a copy. Carbon copy. Carbon copy. That, yeah. So half of it was on carbon copy. The other half was on the back of uh, some gun shop correspondence. Mm. And I was the first person to read this novel written by this woman who had been forgotten by history and this beautiful novel written by her and an Anglo woman. And she was Mexican-American and serendipity. Yeah, it was kind of amazing. So, you know, again, there was this sort of recursive moment for me because I in the moment when I found this beautiful thing that um, this 500 page manuscript that was really incredible and we published it mm. um, I just it sort of took me back to my mother's, you know, writing in the margins as well. Mm. And so for me, you know realizing that there's this long history of lost texts. Well, and Jovita, because it's Jovita Gonzalez, Mm -hmm. yes, she Mm -hmm.
0: didn't have an advocate, as you said, like she didn't have someone to find her voice Mm -hmm. until you did. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, she was a pretty good good advocate for herself. She she was very professionally successful in the field of folklore studies, but Mm. she married, and then that was kind of the end of her career. So there's also gendered dimensions to this. She was expected not to have a separate career Mm -hmm. um, as a writer, and a folklorist um and so she kind of the novel marks the end of her professional life as a folklorist and so it's it's the last big piece she wrote um and she had a long life after that as a teacher as an undergrad maria did you have a sense that
0: this would be your vocation this would be some like that you would be on this path
2: no i'm really embarrassed to say that as an undergrad i was a horrible undergrad <laughs> i i was the person that i always all. complain about so i was you know um i was not i mean for what really for me what was happening is i was working for very little money in my mother's uh chicana research and learning center doing research And I realized that I could go and get a master's and for the same kind of stipend, uh, earn a degree and do the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was actually working with my mother on doing this kind of bootstrap research, these research projects and these community projects that um, I first became interested in research in particular. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I read the novel and started thinking about it and writing about it. Uh Javito Gonzalez's novel. Is it that, Caballero? Yeah, Caballero that I became really interested in writing. And so that yeah. for me it was research came first and yeah. then I started uh reading a lot. Well, I've always read a lot but but yeah, writing became something that was really interesting to me as a master's student so that was sort of a, like finding
0: some a passion yeah and that sort of fired you in a yeah way
2: and I hard. guess for me like writing is like the avenue for the I hate to say this because I know we're talking about writing but for me writing is a communicative you know art right yes. and it's it's an avenue for communicating or telling these stories that I that haven't been told so for me unlike I think for a fiction writer perhaps or maybe like a fiction writer mm-hmm. I mean it's it's the the impulse to to tell stories that you know that that really kind of generates for me stories that and stories about people who who have been kind of ignored and uh yeah because i think they're really important but that's just my own thing right Well, no, I mean, it makes
0: perfect sense to me. I don't know, it makes sense to you guys too out there, yeah? Mm -hmm. And it seems like in Native Speakers, you were looking at um, these three women, Ella Deloria, Zora Neale Hurston, Jovita Gonzalez, as you mentioned, and how they took their ethnographic work or their Mm -hmm. science work, Mm -hmm. as you Mm -hmm. termed it, Mm -hmm. and meaning-making in Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. avenue Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. created, well, moved to storytelling. To fictionalize, yeah, I mean, it. it's it's Be- an, because there's something authentic about telling mm-hmm. a story that way, isn't it? To, mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. capture the truth, mm-hmm. or try
2: I think to. what's interesting about these three women as writers, and I'll just say something briefly about them. Probably some of you are familiar with Zora Neale Hurston, right? She's kind of canonical, and probably not so much with the other two. Um, all three. Ella Deloria was a, Neda, a Dakota Sioux um, anthropologist, the great aunt of Phil Deloria, who's our Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies. Interesting. Shout out to Phil. Um, (laughs) I'm sure he's tuned in. Professor Deloria. so uh, she, all three of them worked with really important and well-known scientists, including Franz Boas in the mm. case of Zora Neale Hurston and Ella Deloria, and this man named J. Frank Dobie in the case of Jovita Gonzalez. And all three of them wrote ethnographic texts, which are considered more scholarly monographs, you know, kind of more hued to realist conventions. Mm. Right. If you're an ethnographer, you're supposed to tell the truth about what you experienced. It's part and, of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, but all three of them at some point in their careers turned to creative writing and wrote, and, and in particular when they wrote their novels about women. Mm -hmm. And so I became very interested in this question precisely of different registers of writer, of our writerly lives and what stories can be told in fiction that can't be told in, you know, when you're kind of hewing to more conventional scholarly norms and uh, what identities and ideas and thoughts can emerge Mm -hmm. when you're a creative writer or you're taking this different kind of authorial position um, than when you're doing this other kind of work where you have Mm -hmm. to be objective, where you have to kind of erase yourself as author Mm -hmm. in many ways in scholarly writing. So this whole question of the the line between science and fiction and and why we choose to cross that line when we do is really important to the book and you know that's kind of the central thematic and how maria how are you finding
0: that your work now cuz native speakers came out in 2008 mm-hmm. and 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 with the projects that you're working on now with El Museo del Norte mm-hmm. and also uh, Chicana, Chicana Por, por Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, how are how are these? Um, how is your writing changing now, or how is it different?
2: Well, I think first of all, I'm not doing it because um, <laughs> I'm too busy. Actually, I was really uh, kind of freaked out about coming and talking to you about writing, and I, because I had this really kind of in my head, I realized I was harboring this very old school notion of writing, and I'd say old school, in the realist sense, which is, you sit down in the morning, mm. you write for five hours, you create an argument, you you know this is a scholarly monograph model, like you do it every day if you can, if you can get leave, and um, and I was like, you know, what am I gonna, what am I gonna say about writing? And then I realized that these days, I'm that's all I do. I write mm. all the time, but I'm writing proposals. I'm writing exhibition texts for museums. You know, I'm writing. So you're shifting your register with
0: audience. and Absolutely. So
2: it's all changed. And then I was thinking, well, that I, you know, I was kind of harboring this binary between the prosaic writing that we do every day to move forward our ideas. And then this kind of ivory tower. I have to go to my study and and put on my, like, my jacket, my tweed jacket with the patches and get my pipe out. (laughs) Hopefully put tobacco in it. Um, and...
0: (laughs) we these images work well in a bookshop over the airwaves we all have don't pretend you don't have your your jacket with your patches right go back to that
2: but but that you know that understanding of writing does not actually reflect the kind of writing that we do all the time and i'm not just talking about emails and that kind of stuff but really substantive writing where Mm. you're you know because for me, writing really involves a kind of trans- translational process, right? So, and if you're a scholar, it usually means I collected all this data, and now I'm going to come up with an argument about it, and share it with you in this particular format—two hundred and eighty pages—and you know. And so, for me, um, you know, I had to kind of rethink before coming here like what i'm valuing and privileging in terms of writing and what i'm missing in terms of the actual creative writing that we do on a daily basis and the only other thing i'll say about that is you know i loved writing this book and i actually love the process of writing i you know, I'm the kind of person that will wear the same, like, uh, sweatpants for a week. I I hate to admit this. Well, if it's working well, the pants are working. It's it's working well for writing. It may not be working well for other things in my life. (laughs) But, you know, I just get in. I'm like a real, you know, when I get into writing, I really move into a different state. Um, And the kind of writing I'm doing now is not that kind of writing. It's the kind of writing that It happens a lot like what my mom did Mm -hmm. in the margins and tucked along the sides and very much uh, inspired by a passion to communicate and to get this important material and the knowledges that I'm collecting out into the public, even if it's just in a little piece. And I was was thinking about this and about my student writing, actually, which I think is getting better and better. I just have to say that you guys are getting... You're a good writer. How so? How so? What are you
0: noticing? Well,
2: I started thinking about this, um, and, and so, okay, so, sorry, I'm, I know I'm wandering, but back to what I, the way I write now is when I can, right, and usually to condense what I have learned and my data and the things that I'm collecting for either a grant proposal or for a proposal for a conference or to deliver mm-hmm. a paper somewhere or for a workshop or for a class, right? I started thinking about how my students are writing and why they are becoming better and better writers. And you know, you guys, you do this kind of writing all the time when you write for blogs, right? And read mm-hmm. blogs um, in particular, right? So I think that there is actually kind of if we recalibrate, like what would happen if instead of writing a 280 page book, I wrote, you know, 150 blog posts about the same thing. I'm all for it. <laughs> so, I mean, think we so even how it's changing how we might conceptualize, you know, the creative process, mm-hmm. right? Cuz the creative process may actually it may not be that odd for you or to sit with your academia. Oh yeah. Well, that, you know, is a whole other yeah. animal. Yeah. But yes. I mean, so the creative process might look more like what I saw my mother doing mm-hmm. except with a laptop. You know? I mean, so I, I started thinking about that, like all the writing I'm doing, what if I put it all together and think about like that as an opus instead of that? And, and I do think that the Academy is uh, both benefiting from this important, trans. The, what, what we call the post paper or the post... You know, mm-hmm. the post-print world, we're benefiting from this in all kinds of ways, not least of which is in our students' writing, because mm-hmm. many of them are writing from very early ages, are keep writing blogs right. and, you know, extended pieces of writing that, because they're digital, aren't really being considered in the same kind of domain as this, right? So I think it's a challenge and exciting, actually.
0: Definitely, with uh, considerations of voice, I think people then are finding a voice. Absolutely, they don't feel like they have to step into some false register to write an essay or a paper.
2: Right, they because may they not get tenure, but <laughs> that's a whole and other. That is, that is another. Yeah, that's another
0: show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we want to talk about a different this. Show. We'll just keep
2: it to happy talk. Do, do you? <laughs>
0: Well, we ha- we have some serious questions here. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you a question from yeah. a student that I sent in? Um, junior Sarah Spittery, business administration major, uh, my, minor in writing, asks, what are some of the qualities, um, Maria, that you have observed in more successful student work?
2: Well, it really depends on the format. So more and more, I'm, I'm moving away in my assignments. Um, from papers and that's not just because I'm lazy but no <laughs> not generally <just>. <laughs> um, I mean I think that uh, you know just recently I taught a class in oral history and all of the student writing happened online on on a blog and was that Los Rip? No, that no. Th- okay. this was a uh, this was a class related to the Chicana Por Miraza digital archive project, where I had students collect oral histories from local women and collect their archives, collect and digitize their archives, and then put up some archives in our blog, and then write about them. And this Chicana Por Miraza class blog is interesting because it's related to my class, but it's also connected to classes, other classes that are being taught on this model across the nation. So what we're really trying to do is kind of create a community of writers around, you know, this kind of collective and collaborative process. And so the students mainly wrote reflection papers. And what I thought was interesting is if I had asked them to write a five to ten page paper on some archive, like give them an archival image and and write about it, um, I think I would have gotten different kinds of writing than asking them to write a blog entry or a blog post on to choose an image that they had just uh, archived and collected or a moment from an interview and to reflect on that connected to texts that we had read. So there is real content based knowledge Mm -hmm. being produced, not just reflective knowledge. Um, I feel like it would have been more of a chore for them to write that five to ten pages. Believe me, some of those blog entries were really long. I mean, and it's interesting to me how the different perceived how each of the tasks would
0: be perceived, perhaps, and how you felt released into it.
2: And also it changes this. I mean, I'm all for the essay style, the the traditional essay style. If you need that architecture to make sense of your ideas, you know, you have your thesis sentence, you have your, you know, uh, opening paragraph or two, the Supporting evidence.
0: We can all go down the line. We know what that is, right?
2: (laughs) Um, and what's interesting is, you know, the the blog format didn't necessarily disenable that or prevent that. Mm. So some students did choose to kind of apply that more traditional formula in the blog, but some didn't. And I think it really freed up their writing for a different kind of essayistic style, a tradition that is much more, much older than that expository essay tradition right. that is much more like the kind of writing that, oh, I don't know, um, oh. Uh, animal Farm. George Orwell. George Orwell. Right, th- that kind of essayistic writing, right? So there is a long tradition of the essay that isn't in that rigid format, that, that is is also really welcoming and reflective and, and incorporating what- the individual into it. So I like that. With your professor hat on <laughs> saying that. that oh. Also my reviewer hat, and I, you know, because oh. I also have the opportunity to read a lot... Of man- book manuscripts, from presses, I um, mm-hmm. review for presses. And uh, and that means before they publish a book, you know, they send it out to people to say, okay, this is good to go. And there is a lot of academic writing that is very difficult to get through. It's very, very boring. And it shouldn't be. should not be boring well no not if the points to communicate (laughs) ideas and have
0: people enlivened by them right you don't want to have people hitting a wall like to keep them out of the ideas
2: right and and I think you know honestly it's that because it's a communication a form of communication then you can't like invisibilizing the author and his or her positionality I mean I'm not talking Mm. about like total navel gazing and just focusing on yourself which is also super irritating but um Invisibilizing the person communicating, from whom the communication emerges, Mm -hmm. is really, it kind of breaks it, right? So it's really hard to care. And I really, you know, with I also read a lot of dissertations, and when I hear the phrase, this dissertation will argue... It drives me absolutely crazy. Because you want someone to say, I will argue. Yeah. Or I argue. Your dissertation is inanimate. <coughs> it cannot argue. It's a piece of paper with writing on it. Unless it's like Schoolhouse Rock right, with right, I'm I, just a bill oh, and it's sort of right. I mean, This bill will yeah. argue. We'll <laughs> make an existential argument about its own existence. Right. Right. It's magic. That's ma- what happens. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, so then I, I just, you know... Uh, so what would you say, like, step like
0: step into your voice, empower your, yeah. like, uh, grab your ideas, feel mm-hmm. in your writing?
2: There, so I don't think anybody spends, you know, many, many months and years, um, even in academic writing. So we're talking about scholarly writing, right? I don't think anyone spends all that time researching and writing if they're not totally crazy about an idea. And if that's not coming through, then you're sh- kind of shooting yourself in the foot, right? So I think a lot of people are reluctant in academic writing to be too present in it because they believe that if they're not present, they seem more objective. Authoritative. Yeah, and thing, authoritative right? and distanced, and I can be rational about this. I'm not too close to it. But, but you're that's here ridiculous. to say no. No. Why would you write a 400-page book about something you're not totally passionate about? That seems crazy to me so I you know so I think and and it's it's just not reflect so there's a a, for me and it comes back to the native speakers right there's an active erasure right going on in a lot of academic writing a lot of scholarly writing of the beating beating heart at the center of it right Hmm. which is um, a form of um, lying (laughs) I mean I'll say it's in an attempt Right to be mm-hmm. to seem more, or re, more right or, or obscuring, right. So it's in an attempt to seem more like believable, right, right, and and trustable and trustworthy. Uh, we spend a lot of time, you know, sort of excising uh, the subjectivity from our work, and uh, I don't think it. I don't think it works for readers, and I yeah, mainly I don't think it works for readers.
0: I have a pointed question from junior Mm. Allie Malone, psychology major writing minor. Um, And I'm wondering, and we've been talking around it, Maria a bit, what would be the number one piece of advice you would give to students about how to write a successful paper? Um, Would it be find some sort of passion that to tailor your, or
2: right. I mean, it's the one thing that I've seen has led to successful long form writing amongst graduate students and, and undergraduates. Even under for undergrads yeah, too yeah. for you have to be really excited about something, I think. I mean you know, you're given three choices and I you know, I understand that's the reality of but one other thing that you might that one might think about is, you know, to you you have to start early, obviously. That's you know true. and that's um true. To begin with a format that you feel safe with, an architecture, right, a structure. And if it's that old-school expository essay structure, Mm. then begin there. But give yourself enough time to nuance it in the drafting phases. So then, you know, begin with something that you're familiar with, I guess, something to hang your arguments on. And then after that, begin to rethink how you're making the argument. And any time something doesn't fit or seems like it's not working with your argument. That's where the gold is. No. Oh, that's where the gold is. Yeah. So then you, you yeah. find, you dig in there. Why isn't you it working? In. That's where the originality is. I mean, in, oh. in terms of the idea, right? So it's like, I'm going to apply meh, Freudian analysis to this novel. Let's mm. say, I hope none of you uh, have to do that ever. <laughs> um, <Yes>. But, <laughs> but In the moment, right, when you're like, oh, I'm going to jam this evidence into this argument. um, And when it's not fitting, then that's telling you something that probably hasn't been thought of before. And that would be exciting. That would be right. And there's and a perfect example is in this book. You know, this was a I wrote about this novel that I discovered and it was collaboratively written on the border of the US Mexico border in a time when anglos and mexicans were not getting along and it was written by this mexican american woman and this anglo woman and so i when the first time i wrote the, about this novel in my dissertation i conveniently kind of ignored the co-authorship of the novel because it created more problems for and me. maybe some tension or some interesting dynamics. Right. So right. if you're going to make an argument about the sort of what she's saying about Mexican-Americans on the border in the 1930s, if that's what you're hinging your argument on and it just so happens that the novel isn't just written by she who was Mexican-American but by another woman, right. then you have a bit of a problem. And a problem that a lot of critics have ignored because it's complicating. Right. Right, because it's not one voice um, that can speak for Mexican-Americans on the border in 1938, but two voices mm-hmm. that might have two very different opinions about that. Right. right? And so for my book, instead of avoiding that, which I had in my dissertation because I had to get it written, and it was too hard to sort of think about that, I thought, okay, what if I take that thing that's a problem and make it the center of my analysis? And that completely changed my reading of the book. I mean it was transformational. It was so powerful. And I realized it didn't undermine right, I was afraid that it would undermine my argument that this was a Chicano feminist text. Right. But it didn't actually. What it did was Austin. made it stronger. Mm-hmm. Um and and I wasn't doing that by exiling this woman who was haunting my reading and my writing horribly you know. But one of the reasons why people and this is again these voices that are lost, one of the reasons why scholars hadn't written about her and don't want to write about this novel as a collaborative novel is that nobody knows who the co-author is and very little mm-hmm. evidence of her existence had, you know, been uncovered um before I wrote this book. Interestingly, after this book came to my doorstep, her great nephew, her grandnephew, I guess, sent me an email randomly saying that uh, he had seen Caballero, the book, out in print, and that that was his great aunt, um, Aunt Margaret. And I got to go interview him and and talk to him about her and found out all kinds of interesting stuff about her. So all I'm saying is sometimes things don't fit. Don't um, try to exercise those things, but actually go in and see why they're not fitting, because they may open up new ways of thinking about things for you. And when things
0: are hard that's in a way how it should be because that means thinking is hard having new thoughts, yes. that's hard <laughs> right? thinking if is it's hard. not something that someone's already told you <laughs> or you've learned or you've heard, Right? it's something new and but it's really writing, generative
2: too. and it can get there's a moment in your writing that can get especially in long form writing and this is like writing, for, on working on a piece for many many months, right that there can be moments of revelation that really mm. honestly feel like especially if you're writing about historical subjects like these uh this is what nobody wants to really talk about oh, in where they come in they 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 reveal things to you, you feel uh slightly possessed if you spend enough time mm. in someone's archive, you feel possessed by that archive you feel and and then the urge to tell their stories gets really strong and to tell them right. And to not ignore important things like co-authors, because <laughs> they will haunt you. Yeah, I, uh,
0: <laughs> that really struck me that you said that, Maria, and I believe you. Is this part of, so in this work that you're doing and with the oral histories, mm-hmm. now can you talk a little bit about about that?
2: Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that related to writing, too, because I was like, oh, why am I going to go talk about writing when I'm just recording oral histories you know, what does that have to do with writing? And I realized, you know, I mean, ultimately for me, you know, my work has really been about storytelling. Mm-hmm. And um, I do it in a kind of register that is recognized as scholarly normally, but less and less so, I have to say. It seems like um, a part of you resists that because maybe because yeah, of how so you grew boring. up as well. The, yeah.
0: The activism.
2: Where I and the, scholarship and is boring.
0: <laughs> the boring. It's not. It can be really beautiful. Sponsored by Sweetland Center for <laughs> Writing. <laughs> no scholarship is is they exciting. They all know it. And thrilling. They have to read those yes. articles. <laughs> they know what I'm talking about. And yeah, we want better writing. But out you know there. what?
2: You do. You know, e- all you people have to read those articles. You know the difference between a really beautifully written article and a really boring one, yes. right? I mean, and it's not just all about loosey goosey reflective writing. Like there's some really critical writing, beautiful, beautiful theory. You know that is really nicely written right and but to me like what what differentiates that kind of writing, even when you're talking about critical theory, even when you're talking about science, even when you're talking about things that you don't normally associate with storytelling mm-hmm. th- what is being told there is a story being told. And the reason why it's appealing to you and the reason why it makes sense and the reason why it's not confusing you and the reason why you at least understand parts of it is because that story is is really is being told in a a way that is convincing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I often tell my graduate students who like sometimes, not always, mostly not, but sometimes, you know, they'll get they'll sort of. Get infected by the critical theory that they've heard and they've read and they respect, and you know they'll produce writing that is not essentially telling a story, right? That is essentially just kind of flatlining, right? It's just in one place or it's it's echoing the words of someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always ask them, "Well, what story are you telling here?" Right? Because I think we think fiction writers have to tell Mm-mm. stories and scholarly writer writing convinces. I don't know what scholarly writing, what, what, what scholarly writing is supposed to do. Share, our, um, share the data that we've collected, share the research that we've done, communicate it in some way. Right. right. But storytelling is so, it's part of who we are as human beings. Yeah. And so it seems
0: natural if you want to share ideas, mm-hmm. um, that would be a way, scientific ideas, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you would try to, to tell the story of it would be right. the way to you could deliver
2: it. You know, and historians, I don't know if you guys have read much history books, but they have figured out a a cool way to do this. I I, like since I'm interdisciplinary as a scholar, I get to read all kinds of books. And I really like and some people say this is overplayed, but I like beginning with a story, a kind of elucidating Mm -hmm. or illuminating story about the kinds of concepts you're going to lay out or the arguments you're going to make. You know, so um, and that's how I begin my book. I begin Mm -hmm. with a story. (laughs) Um, and so I think that pulls a reader in, right? And even if it's like a kind of a made up story. So if you're trying to explain, for example, something pretty conceptual or difficult, like how algorithms in computer code create identity or interact with identity, you know, I just recently read a piece by uh, a colleague that writes about this. And, you know, he says, imagine yourself sitting down at a computer you're typing in and here you're web surfing, mm-hmm. you're going here and there and, you know, and here's what's happening behind, right, in the algorithm while you're doing all of this. So that's a, it's a story. It's not a true story. Well, the reader is then in the, is a character character. And all of a sudden, you're like, "Oh, I want to know more about this." So, I mean, that's kind of a trick, but <laughs> I think it works. I'm very convinced by it. It always it always <laughs> fools me. I'm like, "Okay, I'm willing to go with M- this." Maria, I have another student question for you
0: from Miriam Ackerval, um, in, in program in the environment major and minor in writing. Uh, what authors or books or works have influenced you and and your work the most? What about them compelled you? Right.
2: I mean, I think I've been really, um, I've been really shaped by, um, uh, by the writing of women of color, really profoundly shaped in my scholarship, um, in the ways in which they incorporate, um, personal reflection and experience theory, um, and prose in really interesting ways, prose, poetry, etc. Gloria Anzaldúa's uh, Borderlands, super influential. This Bridge Called My Back, really important, a collection of writing by women of color. Um, books like, you know, uh, my mentor, uh, José Limón, um, who I worked with on the manuscript, he wrote a beautiful book book of folklore history called Dancing with the Devil, mm-hmm. that again is this kind of, some people call it like a mixed genre, you know, he calls it a long form essay so it includes scholarship Right? It's, there's real scholarship there I mean, we're not just making it it up right right sorry oops yes was that bad on the radio fcc I'm really sorry. so sorry I didn't,
0: I didn't tell you before we, we it's a good started. thing this isn't a video recording
2: you wouldn't believe what's going We're on behind naturally becoming a- oh, no. <laughs> no. the studio audience they're in on it i'm sorry so uh, uh um Uh, He wrote, you know, so his writing, and I think the writing I like most, Mm. really is um, writing that's attentive to narrative thread. Mm. And, um, you know, and I read mainly scholarly writing, uh, so I don't read novels that much anymore. Yeah, I'm just really busy, so... The bookstore is sort of shaking. I'm so (laughs) sorry, but I see scholarship all through here. I just, you know, so I really, I mean, I love even, you know, dense theoretical work, if it's written beautifully. Mm. I I love it. I love reading good writing. It makes me so happy. And
0: is there a person that's standing out like who you just read? Like, who's on your nightstand? That's an inside the actor's studio uh, question. This is
2: kind of embarrassing. I just read, because I've been here so long, I just read, uh, I think his name is Thomas Sugru, The Origins of the Urban Crisis. Oh, my gosh. That book, okay, it gets a little boring in the middle, I will admit. (laughs) Anyone who's read it knows it's a meaty book. It's meaty. It's long. (laughs) But i got to tell you, you know, I think every U of M student should read this book upon arrival. I think it's a really profound... What I love about this book is the way in which he is able to make an historical argument about the... You know, so it's about the It's the prehistory of the riots, the Detroit, Detroit. riots. Um, and what I love about it is that you don't realize it's the prehistory of the Do- Detroit riots until you get to the end of the book. And then you realize that the po- Detroit riots is sort of a postscript. And what he's really telling is a history of violence against black communities mm-hmm. um, in, in uh, southeastern Michigan um, that, you know, we spend so much time thinking about the riot, this one flare-up of, of violence that was very kind of a lot of media attention paid to it when, in fact, there was 80 years or 100 years of, vi- of structural violence before that. I love that book. I love Andy Smith's Conquest. Um, it's an incredible book. Um, Andy Smith. Yeah. And oh, I, what I wanted to say is what I read a lot of now. Um, and it's really exciting, is blogs. And I think some of the best women of color writing and feminist writing is happening online. And what I love so much about it is that its immediacy, its ability to, you know, sort of issue a kind of rapid-fire cultural critique, the whole Beyonce Mm blow-up, right, in the feminist blogosphere. So blogs like... um, Crunk Feminist Collective, Real Colored Girls, Native Voices, um, and of course, you know, uh, um, uh, Feministing and uh, some of the other sort of feminist blogs. I'm thinking, what is the other one? Jezebel. Jezebel thank you. <laughs> oh, that's a great name. Um, And uh, Andy Smith's blog, again, just some of the best critical writing. What I love about it is, is its immediacy, mm-hmm. its you know ability to kind of very quickly diagnose a cultural situation. Because if I were going to write about Beyonce, about this last kerfuffle within the Black feminist uh, blogosphere around Beyonce, you know that book would be out in five years, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I that's why I think it's like when we think about writing, we really have to change the way we're thinking about writing. And it may be especially as academics because the academic publishing industry is very challenged right now. So we need to start thinking about how, and and also because, you know, feminism has really kind of been uh, in a dormant phase. And I would say in the last five years, um, some of the best feminist criticism is happening online. Mm -hmm. And it's really awesome to see people react immediately. Like, you know, also like the hashtag not buying it, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, so th- I think that's writing. I think tweets are writing, yes. you know. Yeah.
0: And it's smart and it's alive. It's and It's smart. It's yeah. Vital. And informed,
2: critically informed, theoretically informed. It's not just like reflective navel gazing. It's serious.
0: Here, I have another student yeah. question. And how are we doing for time? One minute before time. Oh, thank you. Um, this question is from junior Abigail Wilkins, an English major, writing minor. Um, how do you feel about teaching your own work in the classroom? Huh. And and this is a two-parter. And um, in general, do you think professors should teach from their own pieces? Or require students to buy their books. (laughs) Abigail, I I I think this is this This is a question
2: people want to know. Me too. (laughs) Uh, What I will say about that is that I am not a, a I'm not a self promoter, so I the. I would be horrified to teach my book in my class, even though I think it's a good book. It is a good book. And I I dare to tell you. I mean, even (laughs) though I think, you know, it it has some really interesting things to say that my students could benefit from. um, mm, No. I mean, I will go to a class and talk about it if someone Mm -hmm. else wants to teach it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you're going to make them write a reflection piece, like, what? No. You can't. It's. I mean, and that's like, I'm not a scientist. So I think the conventions are really different in the sciences and in the hard oh, sciences. See. You know, because basically, if you're at U of M, your professors are probably going to be writing the stellar textbooks. And what else are they going to teach with? Right. So I think they're kind of in a place where they kind of have to. But um, that's true. I, although I did, you know, this last oral history class, I made the, the students do the work for my for my research project so I don't have a problem with like incorporating them interning right <laughs> no yeah but no that, I think that's actually
0: collaborative cool. and generous right because you're you're showing people a path to engagement mm-hmm. with ideas right and I'm not just rationalizing this. no no I really think that's genuine yeah, I the, mean the what
2: we did was we did oral histories we collected archives we read archives right. we did amazing work and it was feeding into a project this digital archive that I'm working on. So all their work went contributed to our digital our national digital archive project which is huge. But it also what I loved about that process and as the first time I taught it was last semester and I'm teaching it again next semester is that we also read history books about Chicana feminism mm. and the students were able to create for themselves after doing the kind of work that goes into writing a history book, because what they did was essentially what I would do if I were writing a history book about Latinas in Michigan, right? You interview people, you collect archives, and you analyze them, you know, and then you come up with your argument and you write your book. And so they were able to read history books about the topic and then see the primary materials and how you actually build history. And I think it changed... I will say it changed their. I hope if there's anyone in the room who was in that class. Uh, I think it changed their understanding of history because most students really hate reading history. Is that right? That's the impression I get. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it, and so I think my students had a whole different understanding of history, mm-hmm. and I think I might have turned one or two of them. That's wonderful. Let's. Um, could could um, Liz? Could you hand me the loose
0: mic over there and. Um uh, we have time uh, for, for a question, because um, I've been reading student questions, but we have a live student here. Um, we have a live student who will, who will now ask a question.
1: So my name is Bethany Canning. I am a Biopsychology, Cognition, and Neuroscience major and a minor in writing. Um, you've said that part of your drive to write comes from the impulse to tell stories, and that's kind of where your passion comes from.
2: What advice do you have for writers um, like myself who are just beginning to view ourselves as writers kind of early on stage? I think you need to write a lot. I mean, that's why like I was so celebratory about blogs because mm-hmm. I think blogs really force you to write for a large audience, to imagine like to and they, they force you too, to write for a different kind of audience. An audience not of specialists. Um, you know, because if you're writing within a field, You can get really locked into the bad habits, the bad writing habits of that field. And I think when you're engaging that kind of translational process of translating your specific research interest into a different format and for a general public, it can really loosen up your writing in interesting ways. And uh, so, yeah, I I would blog. I would do that. I mean, I sound like such a goofy old person that's all into, I've seen the light. <laughs> but, yeah. That blogging is that's so that nice. That blogging you do, Bill. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> um, but, uh, 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 you know, there's a really great um, blog that a colleague of ours here at Michigan does called Feminist Gap, feminist Gap Junction. It's called Gap Junction. Okay. And it's a science blog. It's a feminist science blog. Oh. It's beautiful. Short form writing, really mm-hmm. cool. Very awkward and up to the moment. So find that thing that you like writing about and blog. Okay. Yeah, that helps. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's so much better than journaling, which, you know, you have to store your journals. <laughs> right? I
0: don't know. Yeah, blogging has this, this sharp, it almost like some edges
2: to it. It's yeah. going to be a bit. Well, and you it can did. also, you know, yeah, it's an archive too, right? Yeah. It's an archive of your writing, so it's it's kind of always there. And I think it's good to write for the public, to get over your fear, right, of having other people read your writing. And uh, the writing just gets better and better. I think Zainab and others that are writing for The Daily now can attest to this, because I, I think writing in that kind of way really helps you practice. And the writing is really good in The Daily lately. I just have to say, I don't know if there's anyone involved with that organization now, but thumbs up.
0: Well, folks, what we'll do is we're going to sign off now for the broadcast, but stick around if you'd like to ask a couple of questions or or more. Um, If you don't mind, Maria, sticking around for a few more questions. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Thank you so much, Maria Cotera. um, Thanks for being our first guest. I don't know who's going to match this, Maria. So <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening um, yeah. to uh, Word Squared, Writer to Writer, um, on Living Writers on WCBN-FM. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
3: Maybe I'm in love with you, I say maybe, maybe I'm in love with you, you put your arms around me, I'm in love with you, you say that you believe me, that our love is true, I say maybe. Maybe, maybe maybe I'm in love with you Your love brings chippers Like loving a stranger Makes me wonder if I know My own mind Some things once important them now, I wouldn't know it if the world came to an end. I wouldn't know it. I say, maybe.
4: You are listening to the DSR on WCBN 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor. Uh, My name is Joshua Tenzer. I I am joined here today by Adam Bressler. It is the 1st of December as we are recording this and the 2nd of December as you are hearing this. Adam, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Excited to be finally in the last month of this crazy, crazy year. Hopefully it can't get much worse. You know, I said that every year since i want to say 2015 where it's like okay now this is the worst year that could possibly year and then they threw a uh, a pandemic and civil unrest and the craziest election that i've ever lived through um remember back when when murder hornets and the australian wildfires were the worst things to worry about I know. But you you have a reason to be happy. The the Giants are in first place yes. in the NFC East. Yes, let's let's talk about <laughs> um whatever Monday night football just happened for us uh last night because with the Eagles losing, the New York Giants have solidified themselves as the number 1 in the NFC East for the first time since 2016 with a record of now this is very important 4 and 7. <laughs> a 4 and 7 team here we are, five weeks out from the end of the season, and a 4-and-7 team is leading a division in the playoff spot. So, so Amy- at, at at this point, it basically guarantees whoever goes on is having a losing record. Of That's course, per- yeah. it, Unless they win out, which is not going to happen, especially looking at some of these schedules. Uh, it's going to be a losing record, and it's going to be – Hilarious that they get a home game in the playoffs. The Seahawks are about to make the rounds through the NFC East. They started last night.